Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to this episode. This is Stephen Moe speaking. Today we get the chance to hear from Elena Chapman, who's one of the co-founders of 27 Seconds, which is a social enterprise winery. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Elena. So we throw around lots of different names. Mm. Um, I think one of them was hungover for a cause or something terrible like that. <laughs> and then um, there's a well-known statistic in um, human trafficking and slavery. It's a, a study done by UNICEF. Um, it was a number of years ago now, but it's quite a conservative study and they estimated that 1.2 million children are sold into slavery every year and when you break those statistics down that's 3,300 every day 137 every hour and one every 27 seconds so yeah that's the the name um we quite liked it because we thought it sort of it's intriguing but it's also explains why we're doing what we're doing in a nutshell Now, in the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Peter Wells all about edible food forests. He's helping out with the Otakura Orchard, which is being run by the Food Resilience Network here in Christchurch. We have a really in-depth conversation about the future, and in particular, thinking about this concept of edible food forests, which involves setting aside land where you don't just plant flowers or shrubs, but you actually plant producing fruit trees and bushes. I really enjoyed talking with Peter, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation as well. If you don't want to miss out, then hit subscribe. And thanks to all of you who continue to tell your friends about the show. Now let's get into the interview with Elena. So it's my pleasure to welcome Elena Chapman here from 27 Seconds. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having us. So I just, I just wonder if we could start this um, podcast by talking a little bit about your past and where you're from. Sure. Um, So I'm a Kiwi by birth, uh, but when I was four years old, my parents moved to Bangladesh, which is really random, but um, I spent 10 years there and actually went to a boarding school in India. Um, So I think that experience of living in what you'd call a majority country, uh, you see, yeah, you're face to face with poverty on a daily basis and well, as a child, I think that really influenced me as well. So, so yeah. do you have memories of being a four or five-year-old and yeah, that was the world that you were growing yeah, up in? Yeah, so I grew up, um, so I was there for 10 years, so I came back when I was 14. So I'd say all of my childhood, well, what I can remember was over there. So, yeah. Mm. And what was it that took you there? Uh, so my parents were doing business there. Uh, they went with the idea of business being a way to help um, a developing country. Uh, so my dad's a mechanical engineer and my mum's a nurse. And they uh, started a business called Dimensions, which services generators at um, embassies and import hydraulic pipes. So if you see a game of New Zealand versus Bangladesh of cricket... Um, that will be a dimensions generator helping stream it. So, yeah. I see. Yeah. (laughs) So your parents had quite an outlook of helping some 
other country. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that sort of planted the idea that business could be much more than just a business in itself, like business is a way to help people as well. So, mm. Which yeah. is, I'm sure we're going to come to it, but that whole idea of social enterprise, like the, that a business can actually have other purposes as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's fun because, you know, in the past they probably didn't use that term. I'm sure they didn't describe themselves yeah. as social enterprises. <laughs> no, but I don't think so. Yeah. yeah but... Um, yeah, that's how we, the terminology we use today. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, I think they um, thought it was quite a new concept and they hadn't heard of many people doing it before. So, mm. yeah. And what was it like going to boarding school in India? Which oh, school were you at? Uh, I was at a school called Hebron, and mm -hmm. Hebron's in Uti, which is in South India. So it's a school of about 200 uh, students from all around the world, and I loved it. It was wonderful. Mm. Um yeah, I think my parents found it harder sending me away than what um, I found it. So, yeah, I, I had a ball of a time. Mm. Yeah. There's quite, it must be quite a community that develops there, right? Oh, definitely. And yeah. you just get to know people really well. And um, I've still got friends from there, even yeah. though I haven't seen them for ages. I still keep in touch. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is going to be one of those small world moments, but <laughs> my wife... Um, went to Hebron and taught there. No um, way! She was one of the, what do they call them? Like An IG? IG, yeah, that's it. She ended up going for three months. Oh, But right. she had a fantastic experience when oh, she was there. wonderful. And um, I think she helped to direct a play. Ah. Yeah, yeah, Wind uh, in the what, Willows. What year was she there? She would have been, that was uh, 2004 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I yeah. left in 2001, so I okay. would have missed her, but a little, yeah. what a small world. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's <laughs> that's the amazing thing with these podcasts is you meet people and it's like, oh, you know, yeah. we, we didn't know that, obviously, and yet there's a little connection. Yeah. Well, I know for, for Ellie, my wife, she had a wonderful time and oh, wonderful. still wishes, you know, still in the plans one day, maybe we'll go, go there ourselves yeah, as a family. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, good. Maybe it's hard to reintegrate back into a society like New Zealand when you've had an experience growing up, you know, going to boarding school, yeah. going to Bangladesh, and then you arrive back in your home country, you know, quote, home country, home. Yeah. but you're not as, uh, you know, th this presumably it wasn't the culture that you were used to as a 14-year-old yeah. coming back. Just yeah. describe that. What was um, that like? Well, I think you grow up with this idea of New Zealand being home and you're obviously different from the country that you're living in and your parents refer to oh, back home and and then um, we came back to visit a few times but we hadn't, uh, yeah, it was only for six weeks um, or I think we did spend about a year but I was only six years old so mm. my time in New Zealand wasn't, I couldn't really remember it that well. But it was always home. And right. then I came back to New Zealand and what was meant to be my home felt completely different. Mm. And um, yeah, I really struggled for about two years, just, I guess, grieving um, my home, well, what I actually recognized was my home back in Bangladesh, but it was a place I couldn't go back to. So yeah, I did find it really difficult. Mm. It's that, I think they call it reverse culture shock, yeah. right? where you, you think where you're going is going to be home, yeah. and then you find that where you were maybe was home. It's so true, yeah. yeah, and you think, oh, I'm meant to be from here, but I feel like I'm not even from here. People and your friends recognize that as well, because you don't know the, 
I didn't know the songs. I didn't know the fashion. I just, I felt like this little oddball. So yeah, because yeah. you haven't been part of that contemporary yeah, culture. Yeah, totally. Really. Yeah. yeah. I actually found, I had that happen to me because I went to Japan when I was 21. Oh, okay. Uh, and I came back after one year. Mm. And in Japan, I, I'm relatively tall, you know, like mm. I stood out and I had blue eyes and it was, it was like a quite distinctive yeah. person in Japan. And coming back here, it was just, just a normal person <laughs> walking down the road, you know. And yeah. uh, it's funny how what you get used to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that sort of period of, you know, 14, 15, 16, that was quite a difficult time, I guess, adjusting back to the culture here. Yeah, it was. I went through a stage, um, oh, it sounds terrible now, but I really hated New Zealand and I thought everyone here was really ignorant and had no idea about social issues. and Right the countries around the world and um you know some people in my class had only been to Hamner and to me that was shocking that you had only been you know two hours drive away uh but I think part of that was just being really proud as well um mm. yeah I hate to say that now but yeah but eventually I, I found good friends and I'm glad that we did come back because um yeah I think Bangladesh and Asia will always be part of my home but um yeah New Zealand's definitely home for now mm. well, when we get to talking about what you're doing now I have a feeling there's going to be some connections here so <laughs> <laughs> this is um it's all good foundations to understand mm. that um and what sort of person were you like as a in high school like did you have some favorite subjects did you know what you wanted to do in the future oh. um I always went towards the art side of things so um, I did history and English and I also did what your class is bum subjects. I did cooking, which I loved. I still love. Um, but then I also did economics as well. So I think I always had in mind that I wanted to do commerce when I left, mm -hmm. left school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that the path that opened up for you? Yeah. So I um, decided to do a commerce degree and thought I'd do it in marketing because I could mix. I, I just thought marketing was going to be quite creative and um, yeah, but then I had to do stats papers <laughs> <laughs> my first year of uni. So I passed those, but then I found out that you had to do um, level two stats and I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. So right. I changed to um uh, B com, but majoring in management instead of marketing. So, but then I would max out all my arts papers doing uh, human geography. So I loved having the two sides. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, some of the theories are quite opposite to each other. So, mm. yeah. So do you find that that was challenging having the different streams of thinking coming in? Yeah, it was because uh, you definitely knew on one side, this is the right answer. And then on the other side, this is the right answer. And I found myself agreeing a lot with the human geography side. Um, and then, but yet having to um, argue the other points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what do you study when you're studying human geography? Oh, it's so interesting. People think that it's, uh, you know, human geography. What on earth would that be? But it's... Like we studied development and we studied community de um, community development. A lot of the papers I took was around development. So, um, yeah. Mm. So did that have a connection back to your childhood as well? I think so. Yeah, it was. I thought it was um, 
just learning things like what's the best way to help people and the idea of I think um, in the past the West have often gone to majority countries and been like here we are now white you know white horse and shining armor and um, and just learning how wrong that is and the um, best way to actually help people so yeah it's, mm. it was you know how you some you take some papers at uni and they really define your thinking so mm. Yeah, there would be a few in there. Yeah, it sounds like it was really critical. Mm, definitely. And did you know what you wanted to do in terms of a career at that point? Uh, I think I always had dreams of doing business um, and doing business which would um, help people. Uh, I think right from a young age I would um, get, get extra chips and sell them at school or little things like that so mm. yeah so you had an entrepreneurial streak <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, i'm not sure how successful they were but i was <laughs> always trying to make more more pocket money and uh, when you were studying was that here in canterbury or were you yeah so i studied at canterbury yeah mm-hmm. yeah and what happened after university oh um well i looked for a job and it was very depressing um and then about six months after looking for a job um I was actually working at Addington Coffee Co-op as a waitress and I love the ethos of Addington Coffee Co-op and they give a large percentage of their profits away and um, but yeah I didn't want to work at a cafe forever. Um, some people love hospo but that's not me. Yeah. Um, yeah and then I started work at Marlene Wholesalers and I was employed as the sales and marketing coordinator so yeah I worked there for oh how many years? think it would have been about three years and just with the Addington Coffee Co-op can you describe what that is because some people listening not from Christchurch won't know yeah so Addington Coffee Co-op is a cafe and a roastery in um, Addington funny enough and they give 70% of their profits away Uh, they're just a real local hub so uh, part of the idea behind it is they want it to be a space that um, everyone from the community feels welcome at. Mm. So you have, yeah, you have mums and you have businessmen and you have. There's also um, a lot of social housing around the area. So yeah, it's a whole hub and mix of different people. Mm. Yeah, it's a great example of a social enterprise. I think yeah. trying to do things a little bit differently. You mm. know, giving the money back and yeah, yeah, not all about profits. In in terms of your job and things, what was it that came next? Uh, so after that, I started working at Hagar. Uh, Hagar is an organisation that works in Vietnam, Cambodia and Afghanistan. And they provide rehabilitation, but in a really holistic way. So I was working in the New Zealand office um, doing marketing and a bit of admin as well. Mm. Mm. And had you known much about Hagar before you started working there? or? I hadn't known heaps. Uh, My husband and I, we were traveling through Calcutta, visiting some friends there who run a business called Freeset. Mm. And Freeset worked with women in um, the red light district of Sonagachi. And Sonagachi is Asia's largest world light light district. (laughs) Red light (laughs) district. Um, Yeah, so it was Christmas Eve and we were... Um, visiting an employee who lived in the red light district and um, it was the most bizarre experience I've had where there's just crowds and crowds of 
men in this small area and the women lie in the streets. And um, I'm sure most of them have very sad stories to tell, but uh, Kerry, who was taking us to his friend's place, uh, took us through a shortcut and it was this dark alleyway and there were um, these women that looked distinctly different. They looked quite young as well and I said to Kerry, oh, where, where were these women from? He said, oh, they've, they're from Nepal and they've been trafficked here into prostitution. And I think at that moment, Pete and I were just like, wow, we're actually standing face to face, you know, just a few metres away, people who have been bought and sold into slavery and mm. it's 2003 or whatever year it was. So, mm. yeah. Wow, so it was really right there in front of you yeah mm. yeah so that event or that um that walking down the road and seeing those women mm. that really had a major impact on what you would do next yeah well I think it was um I remember writing in my journal journal just how different that Christmas Eve was compared to my previous Christmas Eves and how yeah it was impacting but I think there'd be several there were several factors that made us care about slavery but it was from that experience that we came back to New Zealand and um, I saw a job going at Hagar and I thought I really want that job mm. so that's how I started working there yeah and in a way it's a it's kind of a link back to your childhood as well isn't it with that mm. sort of Southeast Asia connection yeah, yeah. Mm. and your friends um, in India with Freeset mm. I'm just curious about that can you describe what they do and yeah Sure. So Freeset is, uh, um, they make bags and t-shirts and um, it was actually started by a New Zealand couple, Kerry and Annie Hilton. And ironically enough, my sister married their son. Um, so there's a few connections there. So that was why we we're there visiting them on Christmas. Mm. Um, so Freeset works with women who are in the red light district, but who want and who have been working as prostitutes but who want to leave. So, yeah, they provide them an alternative mm. source of income. Mm. Mm. And then the bags and other things are sold in other places like New yeah. Zealand or other countries. Yeah. So there's um, Liminal, which connects back to Addington Coffee Co-op. Um, I think they're renamed as Common Good now, but they sell their bags and T-shirts there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were really cool business. Yeah, oh, that's great. It's just nice to hear about what other people are doing. So, mm, yeah. yeah. And so you're back now, you're in New Zealand and mm. you're working with Hagar. Mm. Um, what did that role involve? Uh, so that involved, um, so we're a support office. So the main job was fundraising for the programs overseas. So a lot of that is letting your supporters know how their money's making a difference and sharing those stories and yeah uh, what else there was it's a small organization so like many small businesses in New Zealand you end up doing lots of different little things but I mm -hmm. love that yeah mm -hmm. what were some of the best aspects or the highlights for you we went to Vietnam last year and visited them um, my husband and I and my family were just traveling through there so I stopped and visited them and it was just wonderful seeing the difference that they make in people's lives so mm. yeah that was definitely a highlight um yeah and hearing the stories of people being changed is wonderful as well so yeah, yeah. yeah. oh that's really great and what were some of the other critical factors that led to 
the venture that you're involved in now. Right. Uh, so it was never it was never really planned as such. Um, yeah, Pete came home. My husband, who runs um, Terrace Edge, it's his family vineyard, and he's a vineyard manager. So it's a small organic vineyard up in Wipra. And he came home, he had extra Riesling grapes. The season was going really well. And he yeah, came home one night and said, hey, Elena, why don't we make some Riesling and sell it and give 100% of the profits to Hagar? So that's how it began. Um, and, and what year was this? Uh, this was just last year. Okay. Uh, and then I'm not sure if you remember, but last year there was some terrible cyclones which went through and mm-hmm. the crop reduced dramatically but at that point we were I don't know quite in love with the idea of selling wine which would help people so yeah so we had the Riesling and then we thought well actually we need a red wine as well and then some Sav came up and we thought oh well, let's add that to it and then some rosé and yes yeah, sort of snowballed out of control and, right and then we <laughs> thought oh well why not make this into an actual business rather than a fundraiser? Um, so you started as more of a one-off type thing. Yeah, it was definitely a one-off thing. Yeah. And then it just, yeah, sort of, yeah, as I said, snowballed out of control. And we mm. thought, well, we need a website to sell it. And if we need a website, then we need to register for GST. And how are we going to set up that? What type of business model do we want? So it was, it, yeah, it was quite organic in the way it started yeah and did that happen quite quickly like you the decision to let's pursue this is more than just a one-off couple of bottles or yeah I think so I I think my husband sort of envisioned it before I did and then he's um yeah he's always a few steps ahead of me with where it's all going but Mm. um yeah he loved the idea of his work contributing to um to something bigger than um himself I guess so Mm. yeah Yeah. and that sort of married the two really well together my work and his work yeah Mm. well that's good and what sort of business model did you decide on uh we decided to become a company um yeah Mm -hmm. I think we just thought that would be the easiest way yeah well, that's good. That's one of the areas that I love um, hearing about in people's stories is which legal structure, because I'm a lawyer. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, social enterprises is something that I care about quite a yeah. lot. So it's always good to hear about Did which structures. Right oh, yeah, I think that's a pretty good choice. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few options, but company gives you quite a few, fle- you know, it's quite flexible structure. Yeah. And what I'm advocating for is actually a structure that sits between a charitable trust and a company. Yeah, that would be that, wonderful. Yeah, something that takes the best of the charitable trust world and the best of the for-profit company structure yeah. and brings them together and has things like mission lock and that would be you great. Know, um, some ideas around dividends and mm. assets and yeah but we, we don't have that right now maybe somebody listening in the future will go oh they yeah. got it they got some new structure but oh. for now there is nothing <laughs> <laughs> they should yeah. contact me through the website to let me know <laughs> yeah that's right yeah um, so just, I'm curious, let's talk about the business, but before that, just tell me a little bit about the, the grapes and the wine growing process and things. Is that something that you, your husband's doing that every day? Is he at, at, yeah, at the vineyard? Yeah. So he's the vineyard manager. So he's in charge of, um, 
the grapes and um, making sure that they're um, well and healthy and tasty and then um, yeah seeing it right through to the wine being made so in New Zealand harvest is around um, what's in autumn and most people are surprised when they hear that it's actually quite late in the year so it's about April March um, March April sorry uh, yeah mm. so I think we thought of the idea in February and then March and April got the wine made and mm. we get it made up at Greystone um, yeah so Pete is um, I think I I used to uh, be a little bit self-conscious when I said oh, I married a vineyard manager and um, but I don't know it was just all my own ideas behind wine um, it can come across as quite pretentious and snobby but uh, Pete's really down to earth he's more like a farmer and most people in the wine industry are that way as well so, right yeah people have been um, a bit surprised uh, when they hear that it's a wine that gives 100% of their profits away. But we've had so many people in the wine industry help us out. And, um, yeah, they're a very generous lot of people. Right. Well, that's mm. good. Yeah, so people can see the initiative is trying to do something good. Oh, definitely. Yeah, one um, story I love is we had um, uh, Pete rang up the guy who does the harvesting and um, we machine harvest the salve, but handpick um, some of the other varieties. And so he said, hey, this is what we're doing. Would you be interested in doing it at a discount? He left a voice message and then the guy rang back and he said, no way, I want to do this for free. So he's mm. out there harvesting the grapes for free. So, yep. yeah. So people really got behind it. Totally, yeah. Um, everything on the wine bottle, the labels, the cap, the box, um, every single item that it takes to bring grapes, making them into wine and then drinking it, it's people have either discounted it or given it for free. So it's mm, great. Yeah, there's a lot that you know when you think about it. Sitting down to have a glass of wine, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, there's, there's a whole <laughs> years of work behind it. So, yeah. 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 Well, that's good. To just describe the flow of the money, I guess, that comes in and what right. happens next. Yeah, so um, so we, even though the idea was there a year ago, it wasn't until October that it got bottled. And then we launched um, October 21st, so mm -hmm. we're still actually quite young. Um, but over Christmas, um, we broke even, which is awesome. And um, I think, yeah, so we broke even at 52,000 and then we took in 85,000 over Christmas. So, mm. yeah, it's pretty cool the money that we'll be able to go to Hagar. So, with this run of wine, we think that we'll be able to give away about $90,000. So, mm. yeah, I mean, for some people that's quite small, but for us, yeah, it's, it's a good amount. And we're hoping that as the years go on, that we can increase that. So. Mm. And it's an initiative that didn't exist before. Exactly. And now it exists. So Yeah. 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 And just talk through the name, 27 Seconds. How 27 did you seconds. come up with that? Um, so we threw around lots of different names. Mm. Um, I think one of them was Hungover for a Cause or something terrible like that. <laughs> and then um, 
there's a well-known statistic in um, human trafficking and slavery. It's a, a study done by UNICEF. Um, it was a number of years ago now, but it's quite a conservative study, and they estimated that 1.2 million children are sold into slavery every year. And when you break those statistics down, that's 3,300 every day, 137 every hour, and one every 27 seconds. So, yeah, that's the the name. Um, we quite liked it because we thought it sort of is intriguing, but it also explains why we're doing what we're doing in a nutshell. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And so what, what sort of varieties have you got at the moment? Uh, so we've got um, Pinot Noir, Riesling, Sav, and Rosé. Mm. Mm. That's great. And if people want to find out more, where can they go? Uh, they can go to our website, which is www.27seconds, and that's uh, number two and number seven, mm. .co.nz. Yeah. yeah. And what, I guess sitting behind all of this, like uh, this is all the sort of the how you're doing it and what you're doing, but... Let's get a bit deeper into the why you're doing it. Like, what is it that has motivated you both to be doing this, presumably as a side venture, as well as, you know, having a family, mm. having a job, mm. having business, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think Pete and I both feel like we have been uh, led lives which have been so privileged, and that's been through no choice of our own. Uh, so, oh, there's been this... Um, yeah, I guess desire to give back. Um, our faith has most likely played a part in that as well. Um, you know, we believe that God cares and loves for everyone. Um, there's a saying that I really like, which says the world looks at the poor and thinks, oh, how can there be a God? He's abandoned you. But um, yeah, we look at the poor and we go to them and help them and say, it's because of our God that we love you. So that's our own personal um, faith journey has a part to play with that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess we all believe, well, we believe that uh, we're all connected to each other and um, we believe that we're made in the image of God and uh, so therefore if someone's suffering, um, he suffers as well. So, yeah, it's part of our role to do what we can. Mm. Yeah. And it feels like there's quite a nice connection back to your own childhood as well. Hmm. Um, to what extent do you think that had a role, a role to play in what you're doing now? I remember there was a family which lived downstairs and they had a niece living with them. And at 11 years old, she was um, given away to be married. And I think uh, she was just a few years younger than me and it really hit me as well that she's 11 and she's getting married um yeah so that experience there again um you see the injustice and the wrongness of that um yeah I I think I most likely carried a few of those things and have always wanted to uh do a small part in helping and Mm -hmm. yeah I'm under no illusion that I'm making a great big difference but if we all play a small part and mm. yeah yeah well that's um what is a theme that comes through the podcast actually is that we each have a role to play you know mm. that we're each doing what we can and collectively if everybody does something then there will be an impact yeah definitely mm. 
Yeah. And what are your plans for the future for the for the business? Yeah, so we'd love to add more wine into the um, into the range um, and slowly take over Terrace Edge production for 27 seconds. Um, yeah, we would love to see it become more well-known and be- have it become, uh, yeah, really a, a wine that a lot of people have heard of and choose on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hagar works in, there's several other support offices, so Hong Kong have said, oh, we'd love it if you could come over here as well. So maybe in a few years' time we might... I hate to say it, but launch internationally or something. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I feel like we've only been going properly for about 10 weeks. So, right. yeah. It's I, early days. It's really early <laughs> days, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got to start planning and, uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, have a dream. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if somebody comes and buys a bottle of wine, what sort of impact does that actually have in terms of practical impact? Yeah. Um, so three bottles provide shoes, uniform and stationery for um, a young survivor for a year. Two bottles can provide a month's worth of intensive counselling. Um, yeah, so it's, it, um, the impact that it can have overseas is pretty awesome. Mm. So the dollar value, the New Zealand dollar value, it actually goes quite far, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. And because of all the generous support of the um, people in the wine industry, this run of wine, on average, we give away about $10 per bottle. So, mm. yeah, when you add that up, it does go quite far. Mm. How sustainable is it as a business if you're getting people providing discounted services and you know, helping you out, which is wonderful. Mm. But how do you make it a long-term business? A long-term, yeah. Uh, It's still definitely sustainable. Um, It might not be $10, it might be $8 instead. But we still think that $8 per bottle that you give away is pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it will always be 100% of the profits uh, once we take out all the costs. But Mm. yeah. Yeah. No, I just ask because sometimes I worry that social enterprises rely mm. too heavily on volunteer time. Definitely. And if you took away some of the free yeah. things that were given or discounted things, would it actually be a business Can that could survive? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, for us, being sustainable and being profitable is really big. Mm. And, um, yeah, we hope that in the future we'll be able to employ people and pay them the market rate and um Mm. yeah it's not it's not all reliant on people helping out or yeah 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 that's good um are there any other impacts that you see this venture having uh i think it raises awareness of the hugeness of slavery um the global slavery index estimated that there's what was it 45.8 million people in slavery um, at any given moment. So I think most people, uh, I've had lots of people come up and just say, I just can't believe that that happened still. Mm. And they sort of believe that it was in the 18th century, um, but slavery is larger than it ever has been. It's actually a contemporary problem, right? Yeah, Mm. yeah. So I think it raises awareness as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in New Zealand and other Western countries, 
kind of forget that because Definitely. it's not we're not having that experience like you had mm. walking down the road and seeing these women who've been trafficked and yeah um you know that they've been sold <laughs> mm. and yet that is happening yeah yeah so yeah, i think exactly. you're right um when i was in australia i was involved with a group called international justice Mis- mission oh, right. ijm yeah. um and just some of the th- statistics that i learned through that really raised the awareness of the mm. issue um, particularly that they're particularly focused on lawyers so yeah um, just trying to raise the awareness well Elena it's been a real delight to have you on the show and just to hear about what you're doing um, looking at your life you know I can see in your childhood some echoes of what would come later and that's what's fascinating to me talking to people is just seeing the threads mm-hmm. through a life and that experience in India you know seeing face to face what was going on I think it's really encouraging to hear about a new venture that's just starting out that's actually aiming to help people in this way. So, um, yeah, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show and um, look forward to watching to see how it develops. Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you found that conversation with Elena as challenging and interesting as I did. And hey, if you want to help support what they're doing, then if you look in the show notes, which is basically in the description where I talk about what this episode is about, there's a link to their website, so you can go on there to find out how you could order some of their wine. Now, in next week's episode, we'll be speaking with Peter Wells, all about edible food forests. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Peter. I think in, in five years, what I'd love to see is that this is, um, as, it's, as it's designed to be, this is just one anchor for the local food movement. But this is a place where anyone, whether you're an old-time resident or whether you're, whether you're a policymaker, or a tourist, or just someone who's just someone who's looking for just a bite to eat. If you can walk into this space and feel welcomed, have have accessible food on hand, and also be able to just dive into this kind of world that's already going on here in Canterbury of um, this whole multitude of great stories from people growing food to making it um, to sending it around the country. Um, to just get wrapped up into that narrative um, and that we might be essentially a, a flashpoint for that mycelial network. So that if you, if you wander into a taco orchard, um, you'll find yourself uh, echoing out into many of the different community gardens, local restaurants, um, and other, other beautiful places around the city mm. um, that we might be sort of a, one of many anchors of this of a 21st century uh, world-class garden city. Well, I do hope you can join me for that conversation with Peter, and thanks to all of you who are leaving ratings and reviews of this show, because it helps to get the word out to other people. Until next time.